realised I totally forgot to plug it in. Uh, you can you can analyse any uh, worldview, any religious system, any philosophy by how it answers the following three questions, and we will see what they are now. They're very simple questions, but they reveal very clearly the, the, the truth, the underlying truth, or a way to understand the truth of the underlying worldview. Are we record, hit recorded? Awesome, I love it. It's so well. One, first question is who or what are we? Okay, the second question is uh, what's gone wrong? And what do you think the third question is? Yeah, what's the solution? How to fix it? Okay, so for example, um, I've been reading a book uh, this last week by uh, an Israeli scholar called uh, Yural Harari. You might have seen it. He wrote a bestseller last year called Homo Sapiens, A History of Our Species. And then he's got a follow-up called Homo Deus, which is looking forward, saying, what, if given everything, that, everything we've come from, where we've come from, what might the future look like? And uh, he had a very interesting analysis of, uh, of where we are at this moment in time. And he said, here's how we might have answered these questions in the past. So in the past, up to the last sort of 50 years, what's gone wrong is that we, we, haven't, we don't have enough money. We aren't rich enough, right? So the real issue in our world and the way we're going to address the problems in the world is by, is by economic intervention to help people get wealthier. And once you've solved that problem, basically all their problems will be solved, right? So this has been the driver since, uh, uh, since the Industrial Revolution. It's driven the development agendas of the world. It's driven so much of us. And we see, for example, the way this works out that we measure, uh, the, the key measure that matters above all else is the gross domestic product, GDP, as, a, as an indicator of human flourishing. So what's gone, uh, who or what are we? Well, we're homo economicus. We're essentially beings who consume and who produce. And what's gone wrong is we're not producing and consuming enough. What's the solution? Uh, increase our wealth. Make sense? Pretty simple, right? So basic. No, he says there's a very interesting thing that's gone on. What we've discovered is the richer we get, uh, we don't get any happier. So now happiness is seen as a problem. So who or what are we? Well, we are uh, eudaimonic beings. We are happiness-seeking beings. And so uh, what's gone wrong is, is the things in this world that we think will make us happy don't make us happy. So what we've got to start measuring now is GDH, okay, gross domestic happiness. And we see the, the, the previous economic vision of human life is not working because, for example, people in countries like uh, Australia and Canada and the United States and Switzerland, um, we have a suicide rate between 35 and 50 times higher than the suicide rates of people living in the developing world. Uh, you know, one in 100,000 people uh, suicides, dies by suicide in... Uh, in the developing world, between 35 and 50 people die by suicide in countries that are developed like ours. So getting rich hasn't solved our problems. What's going to solve our problems is getting happy. What's gone wrong? We're not happy enough. What's the solution to, ha to the, the happiness problem? Yoga. Yoga. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. 
medication. Well, what's really interesting, isn't it, is neuropharmacology changing. So it, we, we are really, what we really are is happiness-seeking beings. And this is actually a modern version of Epicureanism. Uh, we're, we're happiness-seeking beings. And really, happiness is about internal mental processes, levels of, of, uh, of hormones and neurotransmitters and so on. And really, the goal is to change your brain chemistry so you float on a sea of happiness. Um, is that cool? So one of the things you may not know, this is a trend, but here's, I just want to tell you this because I find it so fascinating and I'm thinking we could introduce it here in Australia. There's a trend in Silicon Valley amongst these uber successful but highly driven and often very, very wealthy people. They're, they're discovering that they're still miserable in all their success. So you know what the, the latest trend to pursue happiness in Silicon Valley is? Is microdosing with LSD. Isn't that cool? Apparently, I mean, it's not legal, but apparently it works quite effectively. So, um, so you've got everything. You rule the world as a tech titan, um, but you still go, man, I've got to, I'm not happy, so I've got to change my brain chemistry, right? Uh, let's think about education, how this works out in education. I'm just doing this as a bit of cultural analysis to set up Hebrews, by the way. Uh, for 4,000 years, we've worried about how do we educate kids, and typically what we do is we say the kid is given, what we've got to do is change our educational med uh, methodology or philosophy and so forth. Over the last 30 years, what's been the most fundamental shift in educational philosophy? We've given up on changing the schools, and now what we're intent on doing is changing what? The brain chemistry of the kids. So you look at the take-up of medication of, of strong... Uh, of, of very strong mind-altering drugs to change the brain chemistry of kids. What's gone wrong? They're not happy enough. They're not learning enough. What's, you know, what's the solution? Change your brain chemistry. Start, we, we're drugging our kids. We're drugging ourselves. This is what we do. Now, uh, the Christian... I, now, the problem... I think what we'll discover is none of that really works. <laughs> Funnily enough, you know, the more you pursue pleasure... Um, and by just changing your brain chemistry, that doesn't actually solve our core problem because I don't think it goes deep enough. Money won't solve it. Uh, neuropharmacology won't solve it. Direct pleasure-seeking won't solve it. So the big issue we've got to grapple with is who are we? What's gone wrong? What's the solution? Hebrews addresses this. Uh, who are we biblically? What does the Christian worldview have to say about us? Well, it says that uh, in quoting Psalm 8, here the writer to Hebrews in chapter 2 says, What is mankind or humanity that you are mindful of them, a son of man that you care for him? You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor, and you put everything under their feet. Uh, so he's quoting Psalm 8. And quoting Psalm 8, he's actually riffing of Genesis 1, 26 to 28, which gives you a hint. According to this text, who are we? And what are we as human beings? We're creatures of God. And, we're, and, and what's our primary vocation or identity? We're custodians. We are those who are to rule the world. So, uh, so we are... We are image bearers. We're made in the image of God. And we rule the world. Isn't that cool? That's, what, that's what's meant to happen. That this world is meant to be subject to us. So viruses are subject to us. The weather is subject to us. 
production of fruit and food and animals are subject to us, right? That's what's, that's, and we're meant to look after this world in a relation of love and trust with this great God. We're his children caring for his world, but ruling it. Now, uh, is that your experience? Something's gone wrong. And in fact, rather than everything being under our feet, doesn't it often seem like the, we are subject to the world? In fact, this whole process has been inverted, right? We still, we still are capable of extraordinary acts of stewardship and caring for the world. But let me ask you, who wins, you or time? <laughs> who wins, you or time? Your body, my body, we're subject to decay. Newton's second law of thermodynamics, that in a closed system, everything turns, tends towards entropy. That the, is true. The world is winding down. Your body is slowly giving out. Your bo- you, are not, you are subject to the forces of, dis- of, of decay, of entropy, of disease, of death. Right? Isn't it funny? Uh, you can see this everywhere. Yet, you know, if you just sit on a couch and do nothing, do you get fit and well? No. The easy path leads to decay and mortality and death. It's relentlessly hard work to try and push back creation. You've got to work out every day. You've got to take drugs. You've got to look after what you eat. It's just work, work. When you stop working, it just... Isn't that what happens? What's gone wrong? Well, we've been, there's an, there's, a, there's an infection in the world. We have failed. The Bible says right at the start, we were made to look after this world in relationship with God, with the Creator. We were meant to run the world in complete sync with the Creator. So in everything we did, we were, we were working with the divine creative energy that set the world up. But being separated from that, the world is now a mess. Decay, disease, and death have come into the world because of our disconnect from the God who made the world. That's, that's the Christian worldview answer. That's what's really wrong with the world. Okay? It's not that we're not happy enough. It's not that we're not rich enough. It's that, that this divine life source that made everything, this thing that we're meant to cooperate with, we're now disconnected from. Okay, so what's the solution? What's the solution in the Christian worldview? I love this phrase. Uh, in putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. That's humankind. And then he says, yet at the present, and isn't this the great understatement of the universe? Yet at the present, we do not see uh, everything subject to them. So yeah, sure, the world's not working the way it's meant to be. It's a mess. There's disease, death, and chaos. And then I think the five, some of the five most extraordinary words in all of Scripture that I just love. What does it say in verse 9? But... This is the answer to everything that's gone wrong in the world. But we do see Jesus. The world's a mess. Our role in the world is a mess. You're a mess. I'm a mess. I, love, I make this joke all the time. You know, there's a book in the 70s that came out, uh, you know, I'm okay, you're okay. I, I much prefer, you know, I'm a mess, you're a mess. Uh, 
but we do see Jesus. That's the answer. That's the answer that in the midst of all of this, the solution to what's really wrong is Jesus. So, the book of Hebrews is going to make this point. When you and I, if you are in this category, if you're a person of faith, if you're a follower of Jesus, when you look at the world and you think, oh, it's just not the way God said it would be. Oh, it's just a mess. Oh, maybe, maybe, the, my, maybe microdosing with LSD really is a better answer than Jesus, right? I mean, I sometimes think that. I have to say, I don't know about you. Like, if I could do it legally and safely, man, that's so tempting, right? Just, I mean, we all do it anyway legally. How many of you have a glass of, had a glass of wine last night? You're just using chemicals to change your brain function to feel a little better for a short period of time until you get rebound insomnia and the depressive effect of alcohol takes over. We all do it. And sometimes I think, I just love. Just, maybe that's right, isn't it? Maybe it'd be right just to pursue money. Maybe what's really wrong is we're not rich enough. I mean, here in Balmain, it's tough. You know, we're so poor, aren't we? It's awful. We don't know where our next meal's coming from. We don't have roofs over our heads. It's so maybe we need a bit more. And, and you know what? To, to be a person of faith in Jesus is hard, and the great temptation, as we looked at last week, is to drift, is to just capitulate to the answers and the worldview of our culture. It's, that's, the, that's the great temptation. Because it just sometimes feels so much easier just to oh, stop believing in all this God stuff and just give in and bring on the LSD and bring on the money and bring on whatever else. Just oh. It's a bit like uh, sometimes I go through uh, town hall, uh, on my way, uh, in the, uh, you know, coming coming in or out, and, and if you've ever been in Town Hall Station, underneath there, and this, and if you, have you ever been, you've been trying to get to the train, to a train, maybe at like 8:30 in the morning. So sometimes I catch the bus in, then I've got to go to Chatswood to the IGM offices. So I'm changing from the bus to the train. I'm going down to the station at like well about 8 o'clock in the morning as everyone's coming up. What's that like? That's tough, right? That's like ducking and weaving and there's just this wall of humanity coming and sometimes I think the Christian life feels a bit like that 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 the answers of the world and the pressure of the world the culture is just coming at us all the time and all of life we're just ducking and weaving and we're pushing back and we're pushing back and we're like no pleasure's not the answer no money's not the answer no we've got to follow Jesus but it's just so hard and sometimes what do you want to do you just want to go let me just I just want to be carried with the crowd for a bit, right? I just, it's just too hard to fight. It's too hard. It's too hard to believe in the sufficiency of Jesus. It's just too hard to fight the fight of faith. Let me just go back. Let me just go with the flow of my culture. Now, if you experience that, you are not alone. That is the universal common Christian experience, and it has been since the book of Hebrews was written. This was their temptation. Not microdosing with LSD, but going back to worshiping angels, going back to pagan worship, going back just, just, oh, it's too hard, man. It's too hard. And to address that, what the writer to Hebrews does is he says, no, this is what's really wrong. This is the answer. You know, when you're tempted, when life is just coming at you, it's like, oh, just, just look at Jesus. And you know what you see when you look at Jesus? So if you go with the town hall analogy, you go, um, it's like, it's like there's a, there's a, there's a dad who's a prop forward, and he's got his little, you know, four-year-old behind him. 
and, and dad and dad and daughter, they've got, they're getting through the crowds at Town Hall Station, and dad's just there, and he is riding interference, and his little kid is just holding onto his hand for dear life, and the crowds are coming, and dad's just walking forward, and maybe he's got a few tats, and, maybe, and so every, and he just, and the way, the way clears, and, and dad's just walking, and the little four-year-old kid is just following on behind, and so he gets through the crowds, and the little kid doesn't really have to fight, because dad's doing it all for him. That's what the book of Hebrews says is how we're to relate to Jesus. That in the midst of this, don't fight it yourself. Look to Jesus. And you know what you're going to discover when you look to Jesus as you, as you fight this fight? Uh, you are going to discover a few things. Uh, you're going to discover that Jesus in this text uh, is three things for us that are going to help us immensely. We're going to discover that Jesus is, one, a king, Two, uh, he's a champion for us. He's a king for us, a champion for us. And three, he's our brother. What's gone wrong? We've rebelled against God. The world's coming at us. Uh, what's the solution? Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. And when you look to Jesus, according to Hebrews, you're going to see that he is a king. Uh, he is a champion. And he is our brother. And it's an interest. Let's have a look at, let's unpack this a little. Uh, what sort of king is he? Um, well, <laughs> Uh, he is um, an incarnate king. We see Jesus who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory. So he's a king because he's crowned with glory. So this is, uh, this is Jesus as king, but he's a particular kind of king. He's actually an incarnate king. What does that mean? The Bible says that the answer to our problems, the answer to what's really gone on, is not an answer that, that God just yells down at us. Okay, so if it was me, I mean, I'd be God, I'd be looking down at the mess of the world, I'd be like, yo, Mark, <laughs> stop being such an idiot. <laughs> Love people, you turkey. <laughs> Mark, you're selfish. Give away your money. It's not going to make you happy. And, and, you know, Mark, trust me, you idiot. I love you more than anyone else in the world. I mean, oh, yes, Lord, thank you. That's great. I'm doing my best, God. It's not very good, Mark. I know I suck. Yes, you really do. That, you know, that's a description of world religions, by the way. What's gone wrong in the world? Well, there's a God who tells us what to do, sends prophets, guides us, and we all go, yeah, man, I suck. I'm going to try and reconnect with you, but I struggle. Uh, what's, the, what's the, you know, a king who gives us instructions from on high and says, now you've got to perform, you've got to meet the, these requirements. That's not the kind of king that we need. What we need is a king who's going to come and... Uh, and live for us and with us and identify with us. And that's what we have, the incarnate king. Uh, every other religion uh, basically works like this. I'll just show you quickly. It's a, it's a very complicated drawing. Every other religion works like this. It says, here's the, here's the king and, and here's, the, here's the peasant, you and me, and we're, we're a mess, you know, we're miserable and we're unhappy. And the king barks down a whole series of instructions and says, do this, do X, do Y. And you go, yes, I know, here's, here's the rules. I got to do these things, man. Here's the ladder, and and, and and we try and we work our way up. Okay, I'm, I'm, man, and you always screw up, right? 
But we see Jesus in the book of Hebrews, who is a very different king. What does our king do? Our king says, you know what, I'm going to come down. I'm going to come live with you. I'm going to come grab hold of you. And I'm going to take you back to the place of glory and honor. Not because of what you've done, not because of how good you are. I'm not going to add a whole pile of demands onto you. I am going to come. And from the inside, as your servant king, I'm going to heal everything that's gone wrong with the world. That's why Jesus gets crowned with glory and honor according to this text, doesn't he? Look at that. He, he by the grace of God, tastes death for everyone. His, his incarnation is so profound that he comes and he actually tastes death. He comes, he's, he's, not, he's not distant from us. He doesn't look down and say, Mark, your biggest problem is you're dead. The, the illustration breaks down because I'm dead and I can't say, yes, I know I'm dead. He says, you're dead. Fix yourself, son. I can't. I'm dead. Well, that's no good. I know. He says, I'm going to come and I'm going to taste death. I'm going to die for you. I'm going I'm to address the issue of death. And actually, the doctrine of the incarnation is really significant um, at a whole number of levels. It says, it says for example, that uh, God does not despise our humanity. <laughs> Sometimes we think that what's really wrong is our physical bodies, uh, and we've got to liberate our perfect souls from these corrupted physical bodies. That's a, that was a common view when the book of Hebrews was written, right? And against that, Christianity says, no, the problem is not our physical bodies. In fact, we are made to rule the world in our physical bodies. And God comes and the incarnation says he assumes our humanity and takes our humanity into the very eternity of God. So our bodies are not the problem. It's what we've done with them. So the incarnation gives massive uh, dignity and status to the human body. It's nothing, something to be ashamed of. Uh, the incarnation, theologians have also said, it actually makes a pile of sense. Sometimes people think, well, um, I'll, I'll give you a common illustration. Uh, have we ever had a bird fly into this building during a service? I don't know. That's happened, right? It often happens in spaces like this. Um, imagine for a moment a, a pigeon flew, uh, you know, a, a flying rat flew into the building, and there's a pigeon here. And uh, now you, if you want to get the pigeon out of this building... What do you need to do? Take the roof off? <laughs> Thanks, Tim. Okay, so there might be... So often, here's the strategy that we do. We open a door or a window, and then you wave your arms around, and you go, stupid pigeon, why don't you... And so when you, as a great, big, glorious human being, are waving your arms around, trying to give instructions to save the life of a pigeon, how does that help the pigeon? Not a whole lot. It just is totally freaked out, normally heads right away from you, and if you're lucky, by accident, it might exit, but mostly it just flies into the nearest wall or window and eventually falls down sort of semi-conscious, and you can pick it up and throw it out. You're too big, you're too glorious. What does the pigeon really need to guide it to safety? Another pigeon. Like, that'd be neat if you really want to get a pigeon out of difficulty. Become a pigeon. And then you can go, you're not going to terrify it. And so theologians have said, this is, this is the thing, right? We have a king who knows how weak and frail and feeble and messed up we all are and knows that if he just turned up, I think we'd run a mile. It would overwhelm us. But he says, I'm going to come down as one of you so I can lead you to safety. Which takes us to our next point. 
He is uh, our king, but he is also our champion. He is also our champion. Uh, so you see this in many, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory. It was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what He suffered. Now I love this word pioneer. I think we can also translate champion. And it's this, and it's a specific kind of champion. He is a vicarious champion. That is that God comes and he's like that he's like the the front row guy stepping through the crowds for his little kid. He's the champion who goes before cutting away through the crowds and the chaos and the disease and the death so that those who follow behind can be spared. Think about it. What who's the most famous vicarious champion? This is a Sunday school question. Who's the most famous vicarious champion in the Old Testament? David, David, and who does David fight against? Goliath, right? So here's what happens: uh, the, there's this great battle, two big armies, and uh, and the Philistines are there, and the Israelites are there, and instead of them all going head to head and massacring each other, they say, "Oh, we'll send out our champion Goliath to fight against your champion." So the Israelites are like, "Who are we going to send? Who are we going to send?" And in the end, who gets sent? Well, everyone else is terrified. Everyone else knows that they don't stand a chance. And then here comes little David. God's with me. I'll be fine. I don't need armor. Give me some stones and a sling. Chops his head off. It's, what, what's going on there? Israel has a vicarious champion defeating their great enemy, the Philistines. And all of that is to prepare us for the fact that there is a greater champion, a greater David who's going to come. And the book of Hebrews says that champion who comes not just for Israel, but for all of humanity has come as Jesus Christ to be the pioneer of our salvation, the champion of our salvation. Now, what has Jesus gone into battle against? What are the great enemies that Jesus has gone into battle against? Let me rephrase this. What is the greatest enemy that Jesus has gone into battle to fight against? Death. That is exactly right. So look at this. Uh, since verse 14, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, what's he going to do? He's going to break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. And what's the result going to be? He's going to free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. The last great enemy we face is death. Now, uh, the psychologists and the thinkers tell us there are, there are really only three options when it comes to death, Right? Only three ways we can relate to death. One, we can deny that it's going to happen to us. <laughs> uh, we can, Descartes said this, he said, and, and the key way we deny, us, deny our mortality is by uh, entertainment, amusing ourselves, distracting ourselves from the reality of our own mortality. That's what we do. Why do you think the entertainment industry 
video gaming and all the rest of it, if you include all of that, why do you think it's like this multi-gazillion dollar industry? It's because it distracts us from our own mortality. We can live in denial that we're going to die. Let me put it another way. Why does the surgeon who works on the damaged uh, hand, knee, foot, back of the athlete get paid a fraction of what the elite athlete gets paid when their skill level and their training is, perha is perhaps far, far greater. Why is that? Well, because doctors, <laughs> doctors prevent death coming to us right now, but sports people and entertainers help us forget that it's ever going to happen to us. And that's much more valuable to us if we want to deny our mortality. So one thing is you can deny your mortality. Uh, then there's a second thing, and what's that? What do you think that is? You make friends with it. Make friends with death. Oh my goodness! I've, I've, look, I, I think I have made fun of that position from the pulpit before, uh, because I just find it. I, I know where it comes from. I know at one level that's not a bad thing to say, and it comes out of a whole humanistic grief process, uh, how you deal with grief, how you come to terms with it, how you reconcile yourself to it. And it's just the cycle of life. It's just natural. Just make friends with it. And I'm like, that's like making friends with a turd on your dining room table when you've got a dinner party on. Like, why would you do that? It's a terrible thing, death, isn't it? It's terrible. I just don't think, I think you, I think you can try, so you can, you can try and deny it, you can make friends with it. The third thing is what? You can overcome it. <laughs> you've got to defeat it. Homo Deus, there's all this, you know, Google are investing billions into, uh, uh, into projects to try and use technology and science to overcome death. That's been a driver in the human, in science and in medicine and technology. We've got to overcome death. We've got to find a way. We've got to find a way to overcome death. And Jesus says, yes, I've come to overcome death for you. That's it. So when we are tempted to give up on Jesus, when we think it's all too hard to hold on to him, when, when other things are much more appealing, what Hebrews is going to say to you is, don't drift away from Jesus because Jesus is our only hope to overcome death. Jesus is our champion who's kicked the back door out of death, so death now is a defeated enemy, and you and I can be free of the worry and the fear that seeps into every part of our lives because now death is over. It's defeated, right? You don't have to worry about it. Uh, I'll tell you, the, uh, very, if you think that, that the anxiety of death hangs over us, is incredible. If we became immortal, so here's a thought experiment. Imagine if for a moment, if you had enough money, every couple of years you could go and get all your cells and your limbs and whatever else regenerated technically so that you could live for another 10 years, right? That'd be great, except you could still die if you were run over by a car and your body was completely smashed, okay, or you were plane crash. Or... Now imagine the anxiety that would happen if you'd removed almost every predictable cause of death. You'd never leave your room, <laughs> would you? I mean, the reason we go bungee jumping is because we know we're all going to die anyway. The reason we drive cars is we know we're going to die anyway, and we manage the anxiety around it. The Bible says the only sure way 
to address the fear of death is by looking to Jesus. That's great. So don't drift, man. It's coming to you, death. You do know that. You do know we're all dying. Like it's just a matter of time. The only question is when and how. Huh. Here's, uh, this is, aren't you glad you came to church today? It's like, man, this is so good. Mark, you could have a career as a motivational speaker, man. Yeah, don't give up your day job. Here is what Tolstoy said. Uh, in his 50s, when he'd achieved uh, enormous success as a, liter- as a writer, uh, he had economic success, he was a wealthy guy, he was very famous. And he said this, my question was the simplest of questions, lying in the soul of every man, from the foolish child to the wisest elder. It was a question without an answer to which one cannot live, as I have found by experience. It was, what will come of what I am doing today or shall do tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? differently expressed, the question is, why should I live? Why wish for anything or do anything? It can also be expressed thus. Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? When we understand Jesus is our champion who has defeated death for us, It's not just that we therefore have a hope of eternal life to come. It's that our present experience gets full of meaning and significance because we know that death will not erase it. The people you love, the art you create, the business you build, the science you pursue, the children you educate, the friends you make, the church you build, these things have significance because death does not spell the end of them because our champion Jesus has kicked the back door out of death and taken us through to the other side. (sighs) Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. The final thing is, dear friends, um, Jesus, uh, Jesus is our brother both the one who makes them people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Uh, now listen, as, uh, as in our Western individualistic society, shame or honor really resides within us. So if I do something stupid, then it's my problem. Um, if I forget to put my pants on one day and I walk down Darling Street to get a coffee without my pants on, I'm the one who feels ashamed, okay? Not you. Well, you might be a little if you, oh, that's our rector. Mm. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> See him on 7.30 report. Ah. Um, in a more tra- if you've come from a more traditional culture, what you'll realize is that shame or honor is not, doesn't reside in the individual but in the family. So when a brother or a sister does something terrible, it shames the whole family. And the reality is, uh, we all know we have this massive problem of shame that afflicts our whole human family, don't we? When was the last time that we were naked and not ashamed? When was the last time in the Bible someone said that we were, they were unashamed in the presence of another? 
Genesis chapter 2. Human sin doesn't just separate us from God, but separating us from God also separates us from each other and fills us with this deep sense of shame and unworthiness. So God looks down at us and goes, Oh, Mark, Mark, you should do X, Y, and Z. And, And I hide from God. And I hide from you because deep in my heart, I'm ashamed. You're ashamed. We know that, don't we? We know that deep shame. And it gets worse as a Christian, doesn't it? Because listen, I've been a Christian. I became a follower of Jesus uh, in May 1985. It's like 32 years ago. Isn't that nuts? How do we all get so old? 32 years of following Jesus. I've been professionally religious, like ordained and paid to be good and Christian, for like over 20 years. Let me tell you, there is a whole level of shame that comes on us in our Christian faith when we've been at it following Jesus for years and we still realize we're screwed up. I said, man, I'm selfish. The shame of doubt. Like, how many of you, let me, show of hands, if you're a Christian today and you follow Jesus, how many of you never have a moment of doubt that God exists and he loves you and that it's all true? Let me see that show of hands, right? Never doubt for a moment. Michelle, one person, you never doubt. Okay, that's awesome. Well, write a book, go on the conference speaking circus, tell us all your secret, because my experience is, um, I just doubt. Should I follow Jesus? Should I not? Just hard, right? And then the longer, I, I should be over that, shouldn't I? And this verse comes in and says, you know what? We have a big brother who is our king, who died for us, and who now brings us into the court of his father, into his heavenly home, and isn't ashamed to own us as his siblings. Isn't that amazing? I mean, my strategy, by the way, uh, I had a very clever strategy. I'm, I've, I'm not ashamed of my family. I just think they're crazy and want no one who I know to ever connect with them. So um, my strategy was that Margot, my lovely wife, who's out teaching kids' church, so isn't here to correct me, um, Margot only met my mum four days before we got married. <laughs> and she only met my dad and my brother like a couple of years into our marriage when it was well and truly too late. That's <laughs> like, huh, okay, and we've all got that, you know, that kind of crazy uncle who always gets drunk and takes his pants down at, you know, Christmas dinner and whatever it is, starts a fight. There's, there's shameful members of our family everywhere. We hide them away. We are that shameful member of God's family. But he doesn't hide us away. He says, Jesus says, look at this. He goes, I'm actually going to declare your name to my brothers in the assembly. He's going to bring us to worship God in God's presence. And then he's going to own us as his own. Here am I and the children God has given me. Isn't that extraordinary? He's prepared to own us as his own. No shame. You see, we are saved. We're drawn into God's presence by grace, not by our our performance. We have a king, we have a champion who looks at us and says, there is no, sh- you are good enough for me. I died for you. My blood covers you. We, we have a champion, you know, who says, what counts is his faith, not my faith. What counts is his obedience, not my obedience. What counts is his sexual purity, not my sexual purity. What counts is his humility, not my humility. What counts is his prayer life, not my prayer life. What counts is his worship, not my worship. And he does all of that and covers it all over. So he says, you know, you're good enough because I've done it all for you. Isn't that extraordinary? 
I think we struggle with this so massively. But this is the cause of source of, this is the unique power of Christianity to deal with our shame. I'll tell you how, let me give you insight into my week. Been back from Canada week, it's awesome to be back, it's fantastic, life's cruising along, it's going just great until I get a phone call Friday afternoon from a friend in Melbourne says we have a mutual friend who's been involved in a ministry that we are, we've been in together for 20 years. And this third friend, this mutual friend is a high school teacher, Christian guy, very keen Christian, been involved in ministry for 20 years. Wednesday night, Christian high school teacher, keen Christian, involved in all kinds of music ministry, gets a, you know, eight cops bust in his door and uh, he's arrested and charged with uh, possession and distribution of child pornography. You know, let me tell you this, right? Pedophiles are the one category of people who, in our culture, are beyond redemption. Christianity is true. My brother, who is an evil, despicable man, who has done evil and despicable things, will dance and worship with his king and his champion and his brother Jesus in the household of God, and Jesus will say to him, I'm not ashamed of you, because I died for your evil. See, unless Christianity works for him, it can't really work for us. If we can't get our heads around it working for a pedophile, what we're really doing is saying Christianity is sort of, Jesus really expects us to be kind of nice and middle class, and then he just sprinkles a bit of holiness on top of our nice middle class togetherness. Say, no, no. He says, oh, it's not going to be a, the most shameful person. If they turn and follow Jesus, there is, they will dance in the presence of God, naked and unashamed. I want to say to you now, I'm, I'm hoping and praying and trusting like crazy that none of you uh, are pedophiles. I do, it's possible, and if you are, you know, get help, go to jail, get sorted out, stop. But oh my goodness, let me tell you, we all... Uh, there is shame lurking inside of us that infects us. And the wonderful news of Jesus is he is a brother who sets us free, not because we're good or wonderful, but because he died for us. And he says, I'm not ashamed of you. <laughs> I actually think that's the key for healing, right? Because what shame does is it distances us from other people. And we get locked into a spiral of hiding and compartmentalizing and distance in what Jesus... And the, the greatest thing that can heal our shame is human connection. And that's what, the, that's what the 12 Steps program tells us. That's what the recovery movement tells us. That's what Jesus tells us. He says, come, I will connect with you. I will love you. My blood, my death, my life will cover over your shame and you will be made clean and new and healed and restored forever and for always. <laughs> so brothers and sisters, friends, look to Jesus. <laughs> you are not gonna find, I am not gonna find in this world a better king or a better champion or a better brother. Let's pray.